This morning we're thinking about God's grace in giving mankind a new beginning. But before we get to that new beginning, we want to go back and see where we have come from on the ark and make a little connection between the two. Now imagine that you went on the ark with all those animals, and I can't find in Scripture that God gave Noah a timetable on anything. And it begins to rain, and it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. And I imagine that the weather was pretty rough during that time, heavy downpour. And then the boat begins to float, and I'm suggesting that maybe as the fountains of the deep broke open, there was a little turbulence in the waters, and you're there for 371 days in that boat, wondering what's coming next, wondering if you will be delivered. Well, we want to talk about God's remembrance of Noah and all the animals, not that he had forgotten them, but the Scripture says he remembered them. Then his deliverance from the ark, his assurance that he will never destroy the earth by water again, and then the unfortunate intemperance of Noah. Now, the question is asked by many people today who are interested in Scripture, what just were the effects of the flood, and how far-reaching were they? Well, let's see what Scripture says back in Genesis 7. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth, and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. All the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the Spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. And so he destroyed all things which were on the face of the earth, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air, They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Now suppose God wanted to communicate that as a result of his judgment in Noah's day, there had been a worldwide flood with catastrophic results. Could he have made it any clearer than he did here in Genesis chapter 7. And we put together all the other things that he said, and I don't see how it could have been interpreted any other way. If it had been a local flood, why couldn't Noah and the animals have just migrated to higher ground off the Mesopotamian plain? Uh, Surely God could have given them the uh, length of time, 120 days, to silently, secretly move on out and take some animals with them and go somewhere else if it's a local flood. And why did Noah have to take birds on the ark? Birds can travel hundreds of miles in a day. If there was food down in Egypt, why didn't he just move down there for a while? It looks to me like when God says he destroyed every living thing on the face of the earth, that's exactly what he meant that there weren't still 
penguins up in the Antarctic somewhere that weren't affected by sin, as some would say today. Well, let's take a look at a commentary. Dr. Herbert Lupole comments on this question. A measure of the waters is now made by comparison with the only available standard for such waters, the mountains. They are said to have been covered. Not a few merely, but all the high mountains under all the heavens. One of these expressions alone would almost necessitate the impression that the author intended to convey the idea of the absolute universality of the flood. All the high mountains. Yet since all is known to be used in a relative sense, the writer removes all possible ambiguity by adding the phrase, under all the heavens. A double all cannot be relative. It almost constitutes a Hebrew superlative. So we believe that the text disposes of the question of the universality of the flood. Well, that's the Old Testament text. What does the New Testament say? Second Peter 3, a passage with which we are familiar. We've used it before, even in the God's Clock doctrinal study. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. There is the doctrine of uniformitarianism. Everything just goes on as it has. So if you study what's happening now, you can extrapolate back to what was happening back then when Noah was on the ark. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world at that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Well, if God didn't destroy everything by the flood, why would we think he would destroy everything by the fire? Dr. Hugh Ross is an astrophysicist. He claims to be a progressive creationist. He is a prolific critic of the young earth model of creation that I think would be the biblical model. He's published a paper entitled 14 Reasons Why the Flood of Noah's Day Had to Be Local. Why would he be floundering on the flood? Well, the greater majority of his arguments are not exegetical from the Scripture, but they come from naturalistic science, which you remember is always changing. And a good bit of what he says depends on the doctrine of uniformitarianism. He would say that um, the waters could not have been covering the mountains. There couldn't possibly have been uh, that much water. He would also need about a half billion years to account for all the fossils that we find. And he would say that uh, before Adam, there were uh, soulless, man-like creatures who were on the earth. And so we have death for a half billion years before Adam even comes on the scene. And that's a little bit in conflict with what uh, the New Testament has to say about where death came from. Well, he would say that the waters could not possibly have covered Mount Everest. We would say that the waters formed 
Mount Everest. Vast subterranean caverns down under the earth that were emptying out the waters of the fountains of the deep began to collapse at some point. The ocean floor was sinking down to its current levels, and that pressure was pushing up things on the topography of the surface, and there were mountains and there were irregularities in the Grand Canyon, and the various things that we see, I believe, were formed by the flood of Noah. Kyle and Dalich are generally a very reliable commentary on the Old Testament, commentators on the Old Testament. Here's what they say. A flood which rose to 15 cubits above the top of Ararat could not remain partial even if it continued only a few days, to say nothing of the fact that the water was rising for 40 days and remained at its highest elevation for 150 days. To speak of such a flood as partial is absurd. Even if it broke out only in one spot, it would spread over the earth from one end to the other and reach everywhere to the same elevation. However impossible, therefore, scientific men may declare it to be for them to conceive of a universal flood of such a height and duration in accordance with the known laws of nature, this inability on their part does not justify anyone in questioning the possibility of such an event being produced by the omnipotence of God. And to this must be added that apart from the legend of a flood, which is found in nearly every nation, the earth presents unquestionable traces of submersion in the fossil, fossil remains of animals and plants, which are found upon the Cordilleras and the Himalayas, even beyond the limit of perpetual snow. And we know now that there are about 230 flood legends from all over the world, uh, many of which contain the story of a family surviving in a boat. Well, let's come to God's remembrance of Noah. At the end of chapter 7, we see the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And I wonder if Noah was thinking at that time what we sometimes think, God must have forgotten about me down here in my predicament. Because if he remembered me, why haven't I been hearing from him? I've been sending up the prayers. I've been telling him about my need, but silence. Well, many times God uses silence as he did in Jesus' response to the Canaanite woman in her plea for her demon-possessed daughter to be healed. He uses that silence to build our faith. And we continue to ask. And we continue to trust that he has not forgiven us. Verse 1 of chapter 8 states that God remembered Noah and those who were with him on the ark. Now, if you were studying the Hebrew language, you would never think that God forgets something. That word means remembering with kindness, granting requests, protecting and delivering. If you ever feel like you have been forgotten by God, then I've got an excellent verse for you. And I would suggest memorizing this verse, all of us. Isaiah 41.10 Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. So in Genesis 8, verses 1 through 3, we're told of God's decision to bring the flood to an end. 
caused the wind to pass over the earth, the fountains of the deep were closed, the floodgates of the sky were closed, rain from the sky was restrained, and the waters steadily receded. Now, as we think about when that took place, obviously number one and number five probably took place, uh, and it did take place after the 150 days there. Uh, Rain was restrained after the 40 days because we know it it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. And as far as two and three, that may have happened gradually during the 150 days. We're not told exactly uh, when all that took place. Then we see on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark rested on the mountains of Ararat. Well, Mount Ararat is the tallest mountain among those mountains, so we presume that's where it was. I wouldn't be dogmatic about that, but that's just um, what I would guess based on the scriptural text here. Now we see God's deliverance. His faithfulness to Noah is demonstrated by the fact that on the first day of the tenth month, the water receded enough for something to become visible. In chapter 8, verse 5, if you're in the Bible, imagine now they have been on the boat on Mount Ararat, but all you can see on the horizon is water in every direction. But now they can see something that is very encouraging. The tops of other mountains become visible, and they realize that the water is gradually receding. That must have been a welcome sight for them to see. Then we're told in verse 13, on the first day of the first month of the 601st year of Noah's life, he opened the door of the ark and the ground was dry. Nearly two months later, on the 27th day of the second month, God told Noah that it was time to leave the ark. And you see that in verses 14 through 17. That was one year and 17 days after God had told Noah and his family to come into the ark. That's a long period of time to be on a boat, even a big boat. And I'm sure that there might have been a little cabin fever by that time, and I'll bet they and those animals were glad to get off the ark. Here's the New Testament parallel to two complementary commands. God said to Noah, come into the ark. And then later on, he said, go forth from the ark. Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. In Matthew 11, 28, we see Christ saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Remember that Noah's name meant rest. And then in Genesis 8, 16, go forth from the ark. Thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. And then Christ said in Mark sixteen fifteen, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So sometimes God calls us in to the sheepfold and sometimes he sends us out. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Last week we noted that the ark was the only means of deliverance for Noah and his family, for anyone on the earth at that time. Christ is the only means of deliverance for us because we noted that there's no other name given among men 
whereby you must be saved. So Noah and his family came off the ark into a very different world than the one they had known before the ark. Henry Morris comments on that in his book, The Genesis Record. The oceans were much more extensive. I'm abbreviating some of this. The land areas were much less extensive than before the flood. Uh, The thermal vapor blanket had been dissipated so that strong temperature differentials were inaugurated, building up of ice and snow. Mountain ranges uplifted after the flood emphasized more rugged topography. Winds, storms, rain, snows were possible now. The environment was more hostile because of harmful radiation from space, no longer filtered out by the vapor canopy. And all of this he is supposing from what he would understand about what he reads in Scripture. Tremendous glaciers, rivers, and lakes existed for a time. The crust of the earth was in a state of general instability, reflected in recurrent volcanic and seismic activity all over the world for many centuries and continuing even in some degree to today. The lands were barren of vegetation until plant life could be reestablished. Imagine when they got off the boat and they saw a barren land instead of the beautiful land that they'd come from, and they saw rotting carcasses and maybe skulls of people who had died in the flood, what a reminder that would have been of the awfulness of sin. Do we ever see anything in our daily lives that reminds us of the horror of sin? We're pretty clean in our country, and dead bodies and things, we kind of take them out of the way where they're uh, not really uh, noticed that much. Maybe you go down to the funeral home. But in that day, it was all right out there for you, especially when Noah came off the ark. Well, we want to take a look now at what's coming next. What was the first thing that Noah did when he got off the ark? What would you do? He worshiped. He thanked God for his deliverance. He built an altar. And he offered the burnt offerings of the clean animals that he had taken on the ark for that purpose. He wanted to lead his family, I believe, in worshiping God and expressing his gratefulness for what God had done. Now we come to the assurance from God. What was God's response to the sacrifice that Noah made? He was pleased with Noah's worship. We don't know how Noah knew how to sacrifice an animal. Uh, Cain did. It wasn't given as an instruction from God, but maybe they figured that out. We don't know anything about building an altar. And yet that's what he did, and God was pleased with that. And God promised never again to curse the ground on account of man and never again to destroy every living thing. Now, there were some other provisions that were a part of the agreement of that time. But uh, God's agreement was unconditional, that, that all living things would never be cut off again by the flood. Some of the other things that uh, we might see there, let's look at uh, Psalm 104, beginning in verse 5, and uh, before we get to the other terms of the agreement. See if you recognize in this passage anything which might relate to the flood. He established the earth upon its foundation so that it will not totter forever and ever. 
Thou didst cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the sound of thy thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place which thou didst establish for them. Thou didst set a boundary that they may not pass by, that they may not return to cover the earth. The first part of that psalm, beginning verse 1, I think relates to creation, and then we flow right into the flood here, I believe. Well, some of the other terms that you would see in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, man was to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. There would be fear and terror between man and the animals. If you've ever been around any wild animals, they don't like for you to be near them. And that might have been for the protection of the men and the animals, mankind and the animals. Man may now eat meat from animals, but not the blood. Now that's going to change in Leviticus and the Mosaic Law, where for that time, God says there are certain animals that you don't eat, but at this point, they can eat meat from the animals. And then man is responsible for human government, as witnessed by the principle of capital punishment. If you look in verses 5 and 6, if man sheds somebody's blood, by men shall his blood be shed, because human life is very valuable. It's created in the image of God. Then we've got a great sign of assurance that God gives to confirm His covenant. And there it is, the rainbow. What makes a rainbow? Why do you see a rainbow only in the rain or after it rains? The reason is that the tiny raindrops are what gives the color to the rainbow. Each tiny little drop coming down from the heavens there, is like a little prism. And it bends the light the coming into it from the sun, or refracts it, we might say, into the colors of the spectrum. About 40 degrees bend for blue and about 42 degrees for red, and the other colors fit somewhere in between. Why don't we see a rainbow every time it rains? Well, there's one there probably somewhere, but you have to be right at the right angle with the raindrops and the sun to be able to see a rainbow. Each tiny rainbow is contributing its color for a moment. As it falls, it comes down to a lower altitude and it becomes another color because you're looking at a different angle. And since everyone is looking at a slightly different angle, no one sees the exact same rainbow. The one you're looking at is God's unique little rainbow just for you. And you know, I see rainbows often through the years because I was out in God's creation a good bit, but it didn't always remind me of what it should remind me of. And I want to suggest some things that might be a good reminder for you the next time you see this rainbow. Things to remember. Oh, we had a lot of things here. They're not on your study guide. But after the storm comes the rainbow. Even if there were clouds of disorder or chaos in your life, 
that would likely be for a season. And then comes the rainbow. The past is gone now, and suddenly you see the order and beauty and symmetry of God's bow. And He's reminding you that He's still in control, and He still promises good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I remember when the tornado hit in Alabama, and those were some rough days for many people. But now things are green and trees have been planted and houses have been rebuilt and that time of storm is past. Here's the second thing. It takes a rainbow, excuse me, it takes storm clouds and sunshine to produce the rainbow. In God's providential administration of the world, there will be the storm clouds. There will be sorrow and suffering. The Bible clearly states that. But the individual little raindrops out of the storm have their work to perform. And they're going to take that light and make a beautiful picture for anyone who is willing to look. And I think that's a picture of ourselves, of us as Christians. We're going to reflect the light of Christ through the storm raindrops that we may be experiencing in our lives at a given time. And people are going to be able to say, look at that beautiful picture of God's providence working in that person's life who has encountered great adversity. Max mentioned Fanny Crosby, who was blinded when she was six weeks old by a doctor. We were talking about that at Bible study Thursday night. But what a beautiful life and what a reflection of the light of Christ in her life as she responded well to adversity. And keep in mind that we need all the different colors. Each Christian may respond a little differently and people may be able to see something different in the lives of each of us. The good news of Christ translates sorrow and suffering into benefits and blessings that can be seen by other people and that would be part of our life message. Here's the third thing. In order for the rainbow to continue, the clouds must continue in the background. They may be fading away, and sometimes it seems like you see a rainbow on a clear day. But there have been some clouds there, and they are on the move, and you see the rainbow, and it won't last long after the clouds. So while we're here on this earth, there will be trials, there will be afflictions, there will be sorrows. But a time is coming when there will be no more storms, but there will be a rainbow. And it will be the most beautiful rainbow that you have ever seen. Something to look forward to. Revelation 4, and chapter 4 and verse 2. And immediately, John says, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardius stone, And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Then we skip a few verses and we see who was on the throne. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. 
There won't be any storm clouds there. But you want to be sure that you make it to that glorious day when you stand before the throne. Now, suppose you're here this morning and there's still some storms raging in your life. The winds of adversity are blowing. The future perhaps looks dark. And maybe there's not even a trace of sunlight peeking through. What do you do? Well, I would say meditate on the rainbow. Think about the rainbow to begin with. It starts up in the heavens and it comes down to earth. God's judgment is done. And now His unmerited grace comes down to us on the earth. Whosoever will may come. We want to get that word out there. We know the Spirit will take care of the regeneration of the heart, but whosoever will may come. What a joyful message that we have to bring. And then when that rainbow comes down to the ground, there's something better than a pot of gold. It's eternal life and an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. You see, the judgment has been done. And instead of facing the judgment, someone faced the judgment for us. It was Christ, Isaiah 53, 8. He was taken from prison or from oppression, your translation may read, and from judgment. You remember his judgment for Pilate? He is to be crucified. But you remember that that was the plan of the Heavenly Father. And Pilate was just acting out of the evil in his own heart, out of the cowardice of his own heart. He was taken from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, and for the transgression of my people was he stricken. What an amazing message. Now, these are not in your study guide, but we want to talk for a moment here about how to persevere through the storm. Number one, ask the Lord what He wants you to learn from your present predicament. Because these things don't just happen by chance. God has a purpose in them. You need to get alone with Him and pay attention to what He might say. You need to be willing to confess any, confess any sin and repent of anything, including a wrong attitude. That's where sin originates. Then identify God's promises and begin claiming them constantly. Not just thinking about them, but claiming them. I have a little book here, God's Promises for Your Every Need. Some people say your every need. Some people say that uh, those are taken out of context. That's not any good. I say read the context. There's some pretty good promises there. Just reminders. Go back to the Scripture, see what God's saying. Number three, get some help from someone who knows and understands the truths of Scripture. You know, through the years, I've known many Christians who weren't in a church. They were just church dating. And they were in this church a while and that church a while, but they weren't under the jurisdiction of any pastor or any elders. And God likes to work through authority. Find someone that can give you some help who knows and understands the truth of Scripture. Number four, learn from those who have overcome adversity, including Fanny Crosby and the Apostle Paul and many others who have faced difficult things in this life, even people that you know, even people right here in our congregation. Number five, reach out and get involved in helping others caught in the storm. 
that's a good one. Some people are in a greater storm than I'm in. And I'm not in a storm right now, I don't think. So I need to be reaching out to help those who are suffering, who are discouraged, and whatever else they may be facing. Get ready to shine through the clouds. Attitude, outlook, countenance. Be what you are, a Christian. I don't mean be the old nature. Be what you are, a Christian. Jay Adams has said a Christian is not just a human being. He or she is a human becoming conformed to the image of Christ. Get acquainted with discipline, including the discipline of prayer. Christ was out there all the time on the mountain praying, sometimes at night, sometimes early in the morning, sometimes alone, sometimes with others with Him. Get a long-term perspective on life, young people. Get a long-term perspective on life. Ecclesiastes 12:13. Here's the conclusion. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. All these other things are not going to solve the problem. Houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, orchards, groves of flourishing trees, servants, herds, flocks, silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces, great choirs, 700 wives, 300 concubines, all your heart's desire, all the pleasures to delight the heart of man. Now you would think if you had some of this stuff that it would get you out of the storm. But it doesn't. Oh, it may distract you for a little while. But then in that quiet moment, you realize it is meaningless. It's meaningless. In fact, Solomon tells us that. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. Chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. So consider the conclusion of the matter. Not just the here and now existentialist who has tried all the short-term solutions. Lying, blaming, running, hiding, drinking, drugs. All those things may help in the short term, but they create more problems than they solve in the long range. People who are looking for anything other than the gospel of Christ are looking for the wrong solution. And they're probably going to end up disillusioned and despondent, dismayed. Hope is only found in the person of Christ, not in a procedure. If you follow these eight steps, I'm not saying that at all. I'm trusting that some of those things are going to point you toward Christ because He is the solution to the storm clouds in your life. And He'll help you know why those clouds are there. Maybe somebody else is watching you going through adversity. But there are purposes that God has as we see all through the Scripture. If the storm was not caused by sin, and often it's not, the response might be. So be sure that you understand what God's doing in your life and what the promises of Scripture say so that you don't have that bad attitude toward circumstances, things, and people that seem to be out of control or at least beyond your control. Only Christ can give you the hope that comes from having your sins taken care of. And of course, hope gives you endurance to weather the storm. 
Now quickly, let's take a look in this last section here. Unfortunately, we come to intemperance. What did Noah do after he got out of the ark? He began a vocation that is not mentioned before. He became a farmer and planted a vineyard. And then an unfortunate situation developed after the grape harvest. How could the great patriarch, a man of tremendous faith and impeccable character, fall victim to the old Adamic nature? This is supposed to be a time of new beginning. What happened? Well, we learned already with Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And remember, when temptation comes, God will make a way of escape that you may be able to withstand it, he says in 1 Corinthians. 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Noah made some wine and got drunk. And shameful behavior followed as it usually does. Intemperance and impurity are cousins often seen together. Now, some of the writers have suggested that after the flood, there was a change in atmospheric conditions and that the wine fermented a little differently and became more potent and Noah was just caught unaware. I don't think from the text it seems to be that way. The man planted some grapes and he made some wine and he got drunk and there it is. Pure and simple. How could this happen? Why would it happen? Well, the Scriptures warn us about getting drunk. Do all things in moderation. It could be a gluttony. It could be eating too much. It could be indulgence in a number of things. But for Noah, it just happened to be the wine. Now, what was the end result of his shameful, shameful behavior? And you can see in verse 25 through 27... Verses, Ham's son, Canaan, was cursed. Shem and Japheth, who acted nobly in the instance, were blessed. We don't get too much explanation from what happened there about what happened, but it looks like it must have been a word of prophecy. In the curse, I believe, Noah speaks a word of prophecy. And here's the reason that I would say that. Through the years, some have attempted to justify slavery based on Noah's curse. But if you notice in your text, Canaan was the one cursed, not Ham. Now, Canaan may have been a part of the action. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Canaan represents about one-fourth of the Hamitic line. The rest was neither blessed nor cursed. The descendants of Canaan dwelt in Phoenicia and in Canaan the land of Canaan, which would be Palestine. I believe they were cursed for indulgent moral impurity, and you see that from history and from the Bible. It's said that even the Romans were surprised by the depths of depravity of the Phoenicians and the people of Carthage. Carthage became slaves to Rome, and of course the Canaanites became slaves or servants of the Israelites. And we see in the Scripture God speaking to Abraham in the fourth generation, the Israelites shall come back to the land of Canaan, the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Amorite was a name collectively given to the Canaanites. And then in Genesis 18:20, the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, 
because their sin is very grievous, skipping on down. For we will destroy this place because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it, said the angels. Their sin was so notorious that the name of the city was given to this perversion that was um, practiced there. Now we see more in Deuteronomy. We can go on the rest of the morning, God, talking about the Canaanites and their evil and their false worship. But what happened to the new beginning? It looked so promising. But now sin has reared its ugly head again. And just when you have won a spiritual victory, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door because that's a time when we tend to let down our guard a little bit. Maybe the devotion time begins to slip. Maybe the Scripture memory hadn't been around for a couple of months. Maybe the prayer is not a discipline, but a just hit or miss or if I really need something. Watch out for the enemy like a roaring lion. He's looking for someone to devour. Well, where's the hope now? Sin is on the march again. Hebrews six seventeen. In the same way, God, desiring more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath in order that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Christ has entered as a forerunner for us. The verse continues on. We didn't have room to put it on the screen there. You can read it in Hebrews chapter 6. So what can we learn from this new beginning? Three things. We're closed. Sin will be there waiting for an opportunity. And the devil is very patient. He's been around thousands of years. He'll wait until the moment when your guard is down. Remember the armor we're given in Ephesians 6, and that's when he will attack. And it'll probably begin in the attitude of the heart. Christ will be there waiting to deliver you if you truly know him. That's the reason it's so important to truly know Him. God's judgment ends in mercy as signified by the rainbow. And every time we see that rainbow, we ought to rejoice in what God has done for us. And we ought to be thinking, storms passing on, the sunshine is coming in my life. Now sometimes adversity stays with you, but you can have the sunshine in your soul. It's going to take getting in the Word. It's going to take getting with some people who are going to build you up instead of saying, oh man, you really have got it bad. I feel so sorry for you. Well, the question, do you truly know Him? Have you come to the place where you've seen the need for forgiveness of your sin or even to the place where you realize that you're a sinner? You have broken God's commandments. It's a simple thing, but it's not easy to humble myself and admit I am a sinner. I need a Savior, as was mentioned in first life. And so I come to Christ and I say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. 
I recognize I'm a sinner and I ask you to forgive me of my sin and come into my life and take control of my life and make me the kind of person that you want me to be. And you might add, and I'm willing for whatever storm clouds that may come, I'm willing to face them in the power of Christ. Simple prayer, not easy. I would encourage you to pray it in your heart at this time if you're not sure that you have. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing story, unbelievable to modern men who are basing their ideas upon science. Uh, We thank you that we have a word from you, divine revelation, that never changes, that is settled in heaven, that's going to be the same a hundred years from now as it was a hundred years ago. And we see all the saints who have depended upon this word to carry them through the storms of life, some terrible storms. Father, we thank you for the rainbow and thank you for the reminder that you have not forgotten us, but that you have a purpose for us in the storm, in the affliction, in the adversity. And when it's all done, we will stand before the throne and we rejoice in that. And I pray that if there's someone here this morning who is uncertain about his or her relationship with you, that this would be the time to get it nailed down, to become sure that they stand in the light of Christ and that you have begun a good work in their lives with the promise that you will perform it until the day of judgment. Lord, I want to ask that you would guide us now as we enter a time of prayer. We pray that uh, you would remind us of things we need to pray about. And we thank you that we have a source of strength greater than ourselves in this life and all the storms that blow. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.